Hey there, before we get started, I always forget to say this. Would you please go and take a moment and rate and review the podcast, wherever you listen to the podcast. It's super helpful, it helps people find the show, and it also gives me good feedback on how I can be making the show better, or how I can continue to be awesome. That was uncomfortable for me to say. Okay, thanks for doing that. All right, now we'll get started. Here we go. Welcome to Doing the Best We Can with Eddie Koffeltz. We We hope hope you enjoy the show. (laughs) Thank you very much, Eve and Lucy, and thank you for being here today on this episode of Doing the Best We Can with Eddie Koffeltz. I'm Eddie. It's nice to meet you. I was pitching this show to an entity a few weeks ago, and they asked what the show was about, and I was like, uh, it's kind of just whatever I'm thinking about, and... Then I write about it, and then I take that writing and make it into a podcast, and then I do kind of some other stuff around it. <laughs> and you can tell it was a potential I think, advertiser. They passed. But you could tell they were kind of like, oh, okay. But that's what this is, uh, for better or for worse. I'm sharing with you what has been resonating with me, something that may be happening in my life, something that may have happened in my life, something that just might be happening in the news. And I'm sharing it with you in hopes that somehow this sharing is somehow beneficial to you. Uh, which is what we'll do this week. This week is going to be really fun. I um, am very excited about it because uh, I had a cool experience lately of which I'm going to talk about it in in the main article today and also write about it in the newsletter. By the way, eddiecoffoltz.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. Links in the show notes, of course. But uh, also during the free skate, I'm actually going to uh, kind of follow up with it. Uh, for those that are new, the free skate is the second section of this podcast where typically I just kind of do whatever. Uh, sometimes I just randomly have my brother on and we talk about music. Sometimes it connects all together. Today is one of those days where it connects together. So make sure you're here for the whole show. And two quick housekeeping things. Uh, the first is that I am taking next week off. I have found that the rhythm of this show dictates that I do maybe five, six on. I think this is five on. And then take a week to just kind of like empty out my brain. That'll give us somewhere in the 40-ish episodes for the whole year. So that'll be the rhythm. But I will put out a little quick podcast next week with some listener feedback. So we'll just do a listener listener feedback podcast. And this leads me to the second piece of housekeeping, uh, which you may have realized in that it, this show is live. I hit record as soon as I'm done writing and just go for it. Uh, I do this because I hope that it brings down the veil between us a bit. I want you to get the most honest and real version. And uh, I hope it adds something to the show. So it is live. There you go. All right. Without any further ado, let's get into this week's main thought. Issue 21, Freedom for All Now. During the recent midterm election here in Virginia, I forgot to order an absentee ballot. Is there a good chance that I received it and shredded it in an accidental fit of organizational rage? Sure, but the result is the same. I had to vote in person. As our family walked inside the tiny elementary school cafeteria that had transformed into a polling place, Lucy, my youngest daughter, recognized someone who was in a voting booth. Lucy told me that it was Miss Maholland, and Miss Maholland was a civil rights activist who'd spoken at her school. Intrigued, I quickly Googled this person and found out that, in fact, the woman who was voting was Joan Trumpauer Maholland. I read her website aloud to the family, saying, quote, 
Joan Trumpauer Maholland, a recipient of the 2015 National Civil Rights Museum Freedom Award, is a civil rights icon who participated in over 50 sit-ins and demonstrations by the time she was 23 years old. She was a freedom writer, participate in the Jackson participant in the Jackson Woolworth sit-in, the March on Washington, the Meredith March, and the Selma to Montgomery March. And so voting with us in our little elementary school polling place was your everyday, average civil rights icon. She was replete with her trademark messaged t-shirt, long skirt and bandana. I said to Lucy, Lucy, if you ever meet her again, please ask her to come on the podcast. And soon after, because Lucy is awesome, she actually did it. She ran across Miss Maholland, who was voting at or volunteering at her school. Lucy told her about doing the best we can and passed along my phone number on a post-it note. Lucy is the agent I never knew I needed. All of this went down in November of 2022. Cut to two weeks ago. My phone rings and I don't recognize the number. Normally, I'd never in a million years pick up the phone, even if I do recognize the number. But I just had a vibe that maybe it was our heating and cooling company calling to schedule our yearly maintenance. By the way, it's important to have your unit serviced regularly, and I'm a man who appreciates a cleaned coil, topped off Freon, and a ship-shaped drain line. It wasn't the AC company, though. Hi, Eddie. Your daughter gave me your number some time ago, and I'm sorry that I'm just now calling you. This is Joan Maholland. I was flabbergasted that I was chit-chatting with the Joan Maholland about the weather here in Arlington, much less setting up a time to record a conversation with her. But she said... Lucy wanted me to be on your show, so let's do it. And we set up a time. <laughs> I still love it. I can't get over it. Okay. A week later, the whole family, along with some fresh blueberry muffins and a portable audio recorder, walked to Joan's house. Yes, we walked. Because as it turns out, Joan lives three blocks from me. Just your normal, everyday civil rights icon who we share a trash and recycling route with. Getting to interview her under typical circumstances would be very special. But getting to be there with Brianne, even Lucy, in her home was something else entirely. It was a deep privilege to scan her walls and bookshelves, learn a bit about her life, share about what we care about, and sit down for a proper podcast interview. Joan was lovely, engaging, dry, and keenly aware that her biggest contribution was not to doing the best we can. It was to the kids sitting next to me. This week on the podcast, uh, this podcast, here, <laughs> you can hear the entire conversation that we got to have with Joan Trumpauer Maholland. It is fantastically lo-fi, unedited, and honest. I hope you'll listen to it. And as I've had some and as I've had some time to consider this special moment, two things have stuck with me. First is Joan's urgency. Embarrassingly, I was thinking that she must be so pointed and direct about what must be done because she is aware of her 81 years and wants to get her message out ASAP. But her age had nothing to do with it. In looking in her eyes, there was a fierce glint that defied her decades and bent time, bringing me into contact with the young woman seen in her now famous mugshot. As a girl, a fire was ignited in her that the world was not just, and that fire is still raging. She wasn't urgent because she was running out of time. She was burning and she was aware of who was listening. And that leads me to my second recollection. Joan almost never looked at me or Brianne. She looked past us to Eve and Lucy. She was lovely and kind to the adults in the room, 
but she knew that if she could share some of her fire with a 10 and 11 year old, real progress was possible. And to me, that's Joan's legacy. The fact that a 10 year old spotted her in a school cafeteria and knew what she stood for says it all. Sure, an icon was created at a Woolworth sit-in and a death row prison cell, but what she spent the next 60 plus years doing was translating the atrocities of racism into stories and teachings that a child could understand, consider, and act on. That's the fire I saw. As we left, she gave us a copy of her children's book. The book is titled, She Stood for Freedom, The Untold Story of a Civil Rights Hero. Here's what she inscribed. To even Lucy, freedom for all now. Joan Mulholland. So I was curious, um, as I was thinking through your story, like just to Google you, have you ever Googled yourself? Yeah, most, <laughs> few inaccuracies, but, yeah, yeah. you know, you can't depend on everything. Yeah, but Googling you finds your story everywhere, the story that you share with school children. Why do this? What's the importance of teaching? Well, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it, as the saying goes. Yeah. And also it's to encourage students to get out there and cause some good trouble, as John Lewis said. That I say my generation took care of legal segregation, but there's still a lot of the underlying um, discrimination going on, except mm -hmm. now, I say back then we saw it in terms of black and white, mm -hmm. like the TVs were, but now we see, we have color TV and we see so many more shades of discrimination, mm -hmm. like uh, native language, um, religion, income, um, neighborhoods. We see all sorts of discrimination out there. I'd say young folks got to get together with some buddies who agree with them, have a plan of action, have a stated desired outcome, and get out there and do it. Yeah. And always notify the press. You take your issue to the streets, the lawyers take it to the court, but the press takes your issue to the world. Hmm. That picture of me at the... Um, Jackson, Mississippi, Woolworth sit-in, that went worldwide. It was, in fact, back before color photography in the newspapers, it was colorized and printed above the centerfold, wow. the most important place in a newspaper, on the front page above the centerfold. Hmm. And um, that's taken it to the world, big time. Right, because even now we see with social media and with, the, with what we see, like, everywhere, like, from Emmett Till until, uh, you know, George Floyd and beyond, like when it's captured and when it's broadcast, there's power in that, isn't there? Yeah, which, I mean, just the release of those films, right. film clips and um, yeah. video clips in Memphis. Right, right. The impact of that. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you, like, I know that part of your story was you were, correct me if I'm wrong, please, <laughs> that you were at like a spaghetti dinner with the Presbyterian church here in town, right? And you started- In the county. We're not a town, we're a sorry, county. Sorry, 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 we're a county. I've only been here for years, so thank you. Well, yeah. Arlington is a county and it's the only county in the entire United States, well, it's the smallest county, but where the mailing address is the name of the county, not huh. a nearby town or what have you. I did not know that. Well, okay, so we're here in the county. <laughs> You're here in the county. Um, and you start having conversations with uh, 
like friends that are black, right? And start talking about no friends that were black. But then we how? Didn't have any black friends back then? Everything so, was... so, so who were these kids that you were having these conversations with? They, as I understand it, I've never been able to get it clarified. Hmm. One evening, the um, youth minister told us that next week some colored students are going to come and talk to us about what's going on, um, desegregation, the issue about racism. This was after the Brown versus Board decision and desegregation of schools was looming. And they were going to talk to us, but we were to keep it secretive because the American Nazi Party's headquarters was about a block away. The police could show up and arrest us because it was illegal to sit down and eat and talk together. Hmm. And um, the rowdies could show up and cause trouble. Yeah. So this meeting took place, and I, can't, I couldn't tell you what we talked about exactly, but then they came back the next week, and a couple of the girls and I became like pen pals, hmm. even an occasional phone call. But I have tried like at the 50th anniversary of the desegregation of um, Stratford Junior High, and I had attended Stratford early on, um, I was asking to this packed auditorium, did anybody know anything about this? Was it initiated by the Black Y? I understand the Black Y got um, organized the kids at that end. Or was it initiated by the white minister? And was it happening at other churches? Nobody had a clue. So you still to this day don't know how that came to be? Yeah. What effect did these conversations have on you? Because I know this sort of launched what what we now can read about in the history books, right? Well, it was good to meet the kids. I had already realized that you know this discrimination was needed to be changed. That goes back to when I was 10 years old. And I was down in... Oconee, Georgia, a company-owned logging town, not the fancy resort, mm. visiting Grandma, and um, had the same playmate every every summer. And this was just a dirt road town with a train track running down the middle of it, just gotten running water in the houses. Aquatic life might come through the pipes. You didn't drink that water. Mm. And um, the train that came through town twice a day, making all the houses sort of shake. That was named the Nancy Hanks. Do you know who Nancy Hanks was? No, ma'am. That was Abraham Lincoln's mama. Wow. So you know that a Yankee owned that right. train. Well, Mary was her name, and she and I would play together every summer, and we decided we would sneak off and do what we were strictly forbidden to do, to go walk through the colored section of town. And so we did, and people saw us coming and they just disappeared in their homes or out behind their homes. They didn't want to know anything about those two little white girls if they were asked. That was creepy enough, but then we got to the colored school. And this was before Brown versus Board. It was a one-room shack. It never had a drop of paint on it. The door was ajar. You could see the pot-bellied stove for burning coal, coal that fell off that Nancy Hanks coal train that came through. Yeah, yeah. Um, no glass or screens in the windows, just wooden shutters. No electricity, no running water, though there was a hand pump outside. And one outhouse. So this unisex bathroom thing ain't nothing new. Right, right. 
And just looking at that, it moved me. I knew that out the other end of town was the fanciest building for miles and miles around, a big brand new brick school for the white kids. And I just knew this was wrong. It was not what we learned in Sunday school about treating other people the way we want to be treated, loving thy neighbor as thyself, all that. And I couldn't have put it in words, but I sort of resolved or knew that when I had the chance to do something to make things in the South, didn't care about them Yankees, but to make things in the South the best they could be for everyone, then I would seize that moment. And that came with the sit-ins. I want to get to the sit-ins, but I just am so curious because you spent so much time in education and you have met thousands of 10-year-olds, right? Like, oh, yeah. And, and you know that it's like not typical for every 10-year-old to see some sort of injustice in the world and then have the, the conscious thought, like, I'm going to do something about it. How did, how did you become that 10-year-old that, that wasn't just satisfied with things being different but knew that she was going to do something? I went to Sunday school every week and memorized all those Bible verses, which were mo- mostly about how to live. And I took them seriously. I think that's what it was, taking hmm. my Bible verses seriously. Were your parents activists? No. That didn't, that wasn't a family thing? Just... And my mother was from a white sharecropper family in rural Georgia, mm-hmm. and she was a strong segregationist because yeah. that's what she grew up in. My daddy, he grew up in southwest Iowa. Another pop quiz. Hmm. Um, and he was afraid I would, he didn't, he didn't object to what we were doing. He supported it. But he was afraid his daughter was going to get seriously hurt. Now, in the town where my daddy grew up, the town, it was a Swedish town, 99.9% Swedish. The Lutheran church services, the grocery store, everything was in Swedish. And, but the town doctor had a friend from his college days in Iowa. And this friend showed up a time or two with pockets full of peanuts. This was before planters peanuts and you couldn't get fresh produce every year. But this guy had pockets full of peanuts and he would just throw them out in the yard for a scavenger hunt. And he became the hero to every kid in this little town. Who was he? Anybody? George Washington Carver? You got it. Wow. George Washington Carver (laughs) was the hero to every kid in this little town. And so if you grow up with George Washington Carver as your childhood hero, you're not growing up prejudiced. Hmm. Wow, that is a... You're growing up loving peanuts. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Your story kind of where you left off was kind of leads up into that time of the sit-in. Um, we, we see these now, and you're in that iconic picture that you described, you know, that was above the fold in the newspaper. We've all seen it. We've seen your the bun... But like, I don't know how to say this, but like, wasn't it, were you scared? Was no. it scary sitting there at the No, at the we were cracking jokes and fussing <laughs> at Professor Salter. You didn't really cover that material in class that you had on the final exam. Mm-hmm. That's not fair. Right. And um, I say fear paralyzes your mind and keeps you from knowing what you need to do to stay as safe as possible in that situation. And beyond that, you're going to die sometime. Would you rather get maybe getting hit by a car 
trying to cross the street or for a cause you believe in. Were you afraid when you went to jail? No. That is not normal. You know, you know well, right? Like a lot of people are afraid. I would be afraid. Well, you had the press paying attention, national press, not yeah. just local press. And with the Freedom Rides, you had the um, governors of Northern, when the Northerners were coming down, you had their governors, their congressmen, you had a delegation of congressmen or what have you, mayors and all, coming down to check us out. So they weren't going to do anything too much to us, at least to the girls, because um, it would cause a big stir. Yeah. And yeah. It, it might even get the Kennedys finally doing something. Mm, okay. So you had this sense that there was like both eyes on you and that there was a deeper purpose to this. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of the Northern girls were scared out of their minds, but I was part of that culture. I knew the game. Putting us on death row, that was just to try to frighten us. Yeah. But it was roomier and it was cleaner and it was better food than the county jail. That is that is that is an atypical response to that, but I'm glad that it that's that tells us a lot about your psyche. When when you are sharing your story with kids, what is your hope for when you're talking to them that because you said that we don't want history to repeat itself, but what's the actual like what do you hope they do when they leave their time with you? Take what I said seriously and find something they believe in mm -hmm. that they can do something about some injustice that's still out there it could be a, a muslim girl um wearing a scarf and being teased yeah. in school walk down the hall with her be her friend i know my middle son jomo named after jomo kenyatta huh. um he became friends with this black kid eric in kindergarten they had matching hand-me-down shirts, button-down front-type shirts. Yeah. And I asked Jomo a few years ago, how did you and Eric become friends? Was that because you had those matching shirts? He said, no, he didn't have any friends to play with. So I became his friend. Right. It's just that real practical like way of caring and sitting and being with people. Yeah. So much of what people talk to you about. I mean, I've seen so many interviews, right? Or is a period of your life that happened from 20 to 30. And then you have whole life, not after it, but there's a whole... There's well, a I didn't even go to 30. It was, yeah. you know, that was pretty much over by the um, time I was 25. How have you reconciled spending the rest of your life talking about something that happened in your 20s? Because I don't talk about anything that happened in my 20s. Well, Nobody you don't want to tell, particularly with your wife sitting over there. Nobody needs to know any of that. So how does it how does it sit with you that so much of that has defined at least externally you? Um, well, it gives me free trips, but I'm doing other things. I mean, I spent years yeah. teaching. I think that's very important. Critical. Yeah. Um, and I still have students come up to me. I mean, that I had years, decades ago, not only on you know, the little bit on black history, which I did with the second grade, but uh, taught geography from my t-shirts. Like I got on a t-shirt from Bhutan today. You do, I saw that. Because they are folks that are celebrating the New Year's. Some of them are there. Um, just a couple more questions, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, um, I can talk forever. <laughs> um, Beats cleaning house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I want to be aware of the fact that there are small ears listening to the podcast and also in the room, but 
Um, as you watch the country again in the middle of a season where we are looking at, we are in Black Lives Matter, uh, what's happening in the Asian community, um, and the the upheaval and the change that's happening. How do you reconcile that with what you saw in the civil rights movement? Is it a continuation? Is it a second civil rights movement? It's like, yeah, a continuation. Tell me. Like I say, we yeah. took care of legal segregation mm-hmm. back in the day, but we still have all this racism. Mm-hmm. And that's what the next generation has to try to deal with. Um, I'm not surprised that we still have a lot. I mean, you see this as a reckoning of something deeper than the legal issues? I think it's a reckoning of the heart. Okay. A reckoning of the heart. How about that? My deepest thanks to Joan and to her family and to her foundation and to even Lucy and Brianne for uh, just sitting in that living room, all of us together, learning from Miss Mulholland. It was super cool. Uh, please do go to her foundation's website. It is in the show notes and support them. My special thanks, as always, to you for being here, for Uncle Jimmy, who edited today's newsletter. You can contact him. Go to my website, eddietoffelds.com. Go to the newsletter. Find all his information there. And just as a reminder, I'll be gone next week, but I'm going to put a little listener feedback show up uh, that you can listen to. It's very, very amusing. Uh, But I'm going to take the week off, and I will see you the week after on the next edition of Doing the Best We Can.